from the darkest corners of our world, past the deep shadows of imagination, into the very heart of human fear. I'm Nathan Bartlebaugh. And I'm Seth Dombach. And this is Casting the Bones. Casting the Bones. Hello there. Come on in, sit down, and join us. Seth, this is our very first discussion, our very first episode. Yes, it is. How does it feel to be here? As I fall to my death off my chair. <laughs> I wait quietly, and then your refrigerator falls over or something like that. <laughs> Casting the Bones Part 1. The Legend of Seth Dombach, who's dead. We thought it would be magnificent to open with a live death. Well, <laughs> recorded death. But I think we're going to have a lot of interesting topics to talk about. We have uh, some really cool things planned out here. Um and I think this first episode is going to give us a good introduction into what we're looking to do here with Casting the Bones. So yeah, let's let's talk about that first. We, Some of you may have heard us over on Phantom Galaxy, which is primarily uh, science fiction, fantasy, and horror. It ended up being very film-heavy. Uh, it still is to, to some extent. And we basically were over there talking about the kind of things that we love, the genres that we love. Casting the Bones is a little bit different than that. Um, I've always been a big horror fan, although I think it, it's it definitely extended beyond movies and, and books and really kind of goes back. It started very early for me with just hearing stories, that kind of stories by the campfire, in this case stories kind of down by the, the fireside, by the fireplace. And there's a lot of really great memories I have as a kid uh, in lots of different ways, it tied back to storytelling, the things that got me involved in wanting to tell stories and wanting to be involved in hearing stories that led to my interest in films and books and things like that really started at a more basic level. And thinking about the kinds of things I like to hear in a podcast, the things I'd like to talk about, it kind of keeps coming back to kind of to horror, to that sort of creepy voice over your shoulder in the shadows kind of feel. And it's the sort of thing I enjoy hearing, you know, in podcasts. When I started listening to podcasts, I found myself gravitating really towards horror fiction or fiction with a little bit of an edge to it in that way, listening to people narrate stories and things like that. And we'll probably talk about some of those that are out there. Uh, it's always kind of daunting when you start something new and you realize there's about 50 better options already out there. Uh, <laughs> we're hoping to kind of do, I think, something maybe – a little bit different uh, to put our own spin on it. But yeah, I'm really excited because this is a podcast I want to explore, not just horror fiction as it stands. There's a lot of really good fiction out there that I don't think uh, sees the light of day. A lot of that is short horror fiction. I, we really want to put a kind of spotlight on that in every form that comes in, whether yeah. that's short films or short stories. Thanks to things like Netflix. Thanks to uh, Twitter where people can get their ideas out there. Social media helps people and Amazon getting stories in front of people more, but want to expose that. And then the other part is stories that we present, that we, we tell ourselves and other people as if they were true. And that kind of does delve into uh, folk tales, urban legends. Well, yeah, I think one of the things that we're really aiming at with this podcast too is there is so much out there 
But I think what we want to really get to is what's at the root of fear? What's at the root of horror itself? And what is the greater implication that it has on us as a, as a society, as a group of people? Because these are stories that are rooted in our history. They've been around for such a long time. You know, a lot of it was told to children, you know, even dating back hundreds, if not longer, of years um, as some sort of life lesson, you know, and why, why are these things there that scare us? I, you know, it's something that's always interesting to me is what, what's the primal fear of, of these stories? Where does that come from? What does it mean to us specifically? Kind of getting a little deeper into uh, what's behind these different topics. And I think both of us come to this kind of with a skeptical eye in some circumstances, but we also want to leave a little bit of, of it open there too for those possibilities that, you know, we, we will never probably have a definitive answer for, but it's interesting to think about and, uh, and to talk about it as well too. I would add, I'm totally open to uh, being able to walk away from all of this and say, Hey, I learned some new things. I <laughs> yeah. saw some new things. It would be really cool. I, I think that we want to, reach out and talk to people. There are people I would love to talk to that uh, I remember reading some of their stuff from childhood or experiencing it when I was a bit younger, uh, people that I've encountered since then, and people who are out there that I haven't spoken to or, or right. are not aware of. And I really want that to be this kind of journey every week or as often as we get these podcasts out where we're hoping for uh, every week because we're going to have these split up. We're going to have a one-segment that is specifically this discussion and some small little kind of expose pieces on individual stories and legends and things like that. But then we also are going to have a sort of fiction piece where we'll be narrating fiction, creating some radio plays. And we'll have some information at the end of the podcast where if you have your own experiences that you'd like to submit to us uh, or even if you'd like to be on the podcast, if you've got some art or something that you want to bring to us, stories or fiction, uh, we'll have a place for that. And – we're just really looking to take this journey with other like-minded people who are interested in the unusual, the strange. And just uh, the title says, Casting the Bones, we kind of want to tear up the top surface level of of pop culture and dig underneath of it and, and society and look at those bones, at the things that kind of those stories that make us tick that kind of get deeper underneath the the muscle and the flesh and the skin and look at what's at the very heart of those things so i i feel like a really good place to start discussion wise one of the things i want to talk about tonight uh i sat here trying to think of what what do i find really scary and i kind of kept coming back to this initial point of of childhood fears of childhood haunts and i think it's because for me like I mentioned already, it's really rooted for me. My love of this stuff started very early. Yeah. It is – there's a lot of emotions and a lot of visceral feeling tied into things I experienced when I was young. I think sometimes the kind of horror fan or, or fan of the unexplained that you are is dependent sometimes on where you came to it and when you experienced it. And I think our mindset is so different when we're younger we are open to kind of so many different things, uh, both good and bad, and the world looks very different. There's a lot of magic already in the world, so we come to these things, our experiences are often different, uh, even just trying to think back on this. I think that's where a lot of our fears, whether they kind of be completely imaginary, fantastical fears, 
they're often rooted in some kind of impulse that we can sometimes track down our life. I sat here trying to think about the way I was afraid of things as a kid and how that looks now. You know, I like to think I shrugged off the boogeyman many, many years ago. <laughs> and in some ways I have, and in some ways I haven't. And now that I have kids, um, I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old watching them walk through this world with similar eyes and seeing them pick up some certain fears or anxieties and insecurities. And I'm like, okay, that's, that isn't just coming from out in the ether. It's kind of coming from me a little bit. So I thought it would be a good place to start to really talk about, uh, instead of just having a kind of generic discussion about fear, I feel like it does become imprinted in us pretty early. The first time we put our hand on the stove, the first time we are left alone for a moment and we look around and our safety net has disappeared and it isn't immediately evident that they're coming back or that time you walk past the the house where the dog runs out between the the break in the fence and is boom right there on top of you and you're confronted with again the safety net is gone you, you I think as a child hopefully you know you most of us have probably experienced there's a certain level of a buffer, you know, our, we're, we're, we're trying to shepherd it carefully through the world. And our, for me, a lot of my first touch points were fear or when that, that safety security, uh, blanket was just pulled away. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it, it's one of those things where, you know, when, when we talked about this particular idea of where, where we kind of came from, what was our own personal origin story with horror itself, you know, it's 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 very hard for me to pinpoint a specific uh, instance of where that happened. I, I I always feel kind of like I was ingrained with horror itself. Um, you know, I was kind of a very timid child, but uh, when I was born, I had you know very bad experiences uh, around my uh, my birth. Like my uh, when I was born, my intestines had ruptured. Uh, before I was even born and I ended up having to have multiple surgeries. I was born a month early. Uh, you know, so I went through this kind of like traumatic experience from, you know, my first moments in life itself. And even though I was very timid as a child, like I was very drawn to this concept of, of life and death and kind of like almost not so much as like, you know, very macabre, but just the, the other side of things as well too and i was kind of fascinated with that um even even while i was scared of that you know growing up being kind of afraid of the dark at certain points but wondering what is in there what's in the dark that scares me and being just drawn to that kind of side of it you know so i think i think it's harder for people who don't kind of grow up in in a horror environment or have those kind of things around them to kind of understand why people like horror but I think if, if that's something that's ingrained in you, um, it, it's something that just it, it's it's attractive to you. You you want to know why you have those certain fears, and I think it's also a good way to cope with those those difficult things in life because there's a lot of unanswered things. Fear itself is something that's a it's a hard emotion to deal with. So I think horror offers that side of it to kind of confront those fears that you're having in a safe way that you can kind of deal with and then kind of come to terms with at the same time. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's interesting you mentioned that scenario 
happening very early on. And, and let me ask Seth, I, we've, we've discussed a little bit at, um, you know, in the past, but, um, and I've never really asked you too much about it. Um, how it affected you growing up, but this was a sort of reoccurring, uh, the, the rupture aspect that you talk about, this was sort of a reoccurring health issue for a lot of your younger childhood, right? Yes. Yeah. It, um, I, I ended up having three surgeries. I, they removed about, a, uh, probably a quarter of my small intestine when I was first born. And that kind of continued on throughout my, uh, younger years where I had, uh, like irritable bowel syndrome and just lots of pain from it. I ended up actually having, uh, additional surgery when I was around 22, where they took another, um, probably half of my small intestine at that time. Um, and then some other things that we'll probably talk about at some point, um, happened during that time period too. So that's just been an ongoing thing where I've kind of faced my own mortality time and time again. And were you ever cognizant or do you you know it's one thing sometimes we go through difficult situations we sort of look back and i kind of look at that and i'm like i should have been scared crapless or i should have been like (laughs) really uh man i don't know how i would handle that right now were you very cognizant of it growing up uh did you feel or was it that kind of thing where maybe there was an element to try to put a little bit more buffer between you and and the mortality what was that like Uh, it's interesting because i think with uh from my situation. It was one of those things where it was so early in life that it just kind of kind of became the norm for me where you know when these things would happen because I I would have multiple situations where my my bowel would kind of like loop into itself and I would just cause great pain, you know, like constantly. But it was one of those things where like I had to just learn to cope with it because this was the only thing that I knew how to deal with. Um, but it also made me kind of have to confront, you know, okay, there, life isn't always going to be easy. There are going to be tough things. There's challenges in there. There's the uncertainty of, is this going to, you know, harm me? Is this going to kill me? What is this, you know, how is this going to affect my life? So it's, it's one of those things that you're kind of forced into as a young child. And I think that kind of gave me a little bit more perspective on, you know, the fragility of life at the time and taking things for granted. So it was an interesting introduction to the fear of the unknown for me as a young person. And how am I going to cope with this going forward? How am I going to, you know, turn this around? Am I going to let it consume me? Or am I going to be able to kind of conquer this fear uh, of, of what's what I'm having to deal with is, am I going to let this best me or, or can I overcome this? And and you're here today, and it sounds like you have, and it, it'll be cool, I think, to hear that bit of the the journey as we discuss. That's the one thing I want to say. I think that you and I are both kind of committed to making this a pretty open podcast in terms of talking about fears and 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 horror and things like that in an open and kind of candid way. I'm um, definitely. I've spent a plenty of time talking about things from that sort of critical. Uh, uh, lofty perspective. That's not what I want to do here. <laughs> and, and one of the things we have tonight that we can kind of get started with is we've decided to kind of take a couple things from our, our, our childhood that probably relate to the kinds of things we'll be looking at. So try to come up with about three different experiences we could each share. And 
one of that they're coming from three perspectives because I, as I think about horror, my my mind there's that kind of first. Uh, it's not necessarily the first, but there's definitely a couple of experiences where I remember this is the moment I connected to horror fiction particularly, and uh, I'd say this. I want to make this a podcast. It's both for people who are into horror and people who who maybe are kind of want to reach out but are a little hesitant, a little bit nervous. I don't think right. that we're looking to you know uh, we want it to be for the hardcore horror fan and someone who is maybe a little uncertain about this. And so from that perspective, if you are someone's wondering, well, why do you like horror? Is there something broken in your brain or in your soul? <laughs> like, are you twisted and growing up? You know, it's funny. Cause I grew up in a very, um, kind of, uh, a very conservative Baptist background. My, uh, when we were growing up, when I was very young, we grew up, we lived in this, uh, it was, it was basically, uh, sort of two houses conjoined, but the other side of the house, my grandmother and grandfather actually lived in the house and he was a Baptist pastor. Uh, the funny part about that is most of the really creepy stories I grew up with came from him. You know, I mean, uh, you'd have him <laughs> on a Sunday morning in a real uh, passionate, you know, uh, sermon. And then he'd be telling some kind of horrifying story about Bloody Mary or something in the basement next to the fire with the same sort of, uh, uh, I always appreciated about him that he was able to kind of go between the, he, he saw appreciation in those stories and value in those stories. And, uh, it's funny because a lot of people hear that and their experience is a little different. So they're like, wait, what? They told you these stories. I think it was coming from a different background. You know, it, it's even steeped in that. I mean, I, like I grew up very, you know, in a really religious household as well too. And, you know, even just the, the idea of hell and and all kind of the stories from the Bible where it kind of delves into that darker side of things. Those are those are kind of the, the, the most impassioned speeches that you would hear as a child, and and that fear of you know what else is out there. You know that like I need to be good so I don't have to deal with that horrible thing. Um, that's kind of ingrained from you know a very young age when you start hearing about those things as, as a young child. So I'm sure that plays a big part of it as well too. I think so, and I think it, it it was different too, in the sense that there was a for me there was always an open way. In my family were you know sometimes it was like really you want to watch this, but or you want to hear this story, but there was also a willingness to engage it that I think maybe is in as I started to meet um, people later in my life who were kind of you know they almost had a, a, a distinct fear of it or had grown up where horror was kind of just off limits because it was sort of uh, doubled with being supernatural and occult. And so it was sort of like one of these things that was like a taboo. And it was never yeah. like that for me. Um, it's it, it might be a funny aspect that my, well, my uh, grandfather was a very passionate uh, preacher and he almost had that cadence of like a uh, auctioneer. <laughs> Where that sing-songy yeah. sort of high rhythm, he was he was definitely more of a which I I don't think I appreciate as much then as I do now. He was more of a glories of God kind of person than he was uh, the yeah. fires of hell. I always felt that interesting that uh, that was not so much an element of who he was in the pulpit, but he he did enjoy a good ghost story. He did enjoy a good um, scare the crap out of your grandchildren, which I I, I appreciate <laughs> greatly. But we're going to talk about that moment we sort of connected with horror. We're going to talk about the first time you get told that story and someone tells it to you with that um, 
assurance that it's absolutely true and it's sort of near you know the urban right. legends the lovers lane monsters whatever it happens to be i think everybody's got that experience so we're to throw one of those out i i think you and i probably have dozens of them so we'll try to limit it here to one and then just a really creepy experience that happened to you in childhood and, and this isn't the only one the one i'm thinking of personally but it just that it's sort of um formative like it kind of changed the way i considered things and then looking back on it i realized how much of it was formed by the kind of stuff I was intaking, you know, um, being a weird kid, being a kid who was into horror, did I take circumstances and transform them or were these trans were these experiences sort of making me want to be, to seek out horror and stuff like that. So, right. So why don't we start out, Seth, how about you? What was the thing or one thing that you remember being kind of formative, um, piece of fiction, piece of storytelling, something on the horror fiction side of things that got you involved or 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 clicked for you and it made you think hey this is something i kind of want like i actually like this experience yeah for me it was you know it, it was one of those things where like i said it's it's hard to really pinpoint a specific moment because it always feels like it was it was there with me um but thinking back to it i think really uh one of the things that really cemented it home for me was uh, the scary stories to tell in the dark series. Oh um, yes, I was. I, I was only in. I wasn't even in kindergarten at the time that they were out. Um, I was born in '83, um, so these had just started coming out around that time period. And at the local library, uh, they had a uh, a record version of somebody reading uh, the the scary stories that was like all produced with like sound effects and everything like that, and. Uh, as part of the class, like some of us, we, we would go to the library every single week and uh, just a few of us, would we would take out that record every single week and we would listen to it over and over and over again. Um, and some of those stories just I – don't, I don't know what it was. I think it's – there's so much of those stories that it's um, – it's folklore. It's, it's, it feels almost ancient. You know, it feels very – gets that kind of core of horror even you know you read them now as an adult they're like two three pages at the most but there's something about you know just the themes in those different stories i can i can uh think of a particular one um which was uh room for one more you know the idea that somebody's at their home and this this hearse pulls up outside late at night you know and they're standing out in the lawn you know saying there's room for one more in the hearse if you want to come join us there's room for one more just something about these these stories that really got to you in a you know in conjunction with the tales themselves were these horrific visuals that were part of the illustration for these books and and something so creepy and strange and off-putting about the way that these visuals were made you know it felt something very otherworldly when you look at these pictures uh if you've ever read them or seen the books you'll know exactly what i'm talking about um you know but that that really cemented home for me i think my love of horror i'd, I'd been into like the monsters and things like that as a young child um, and I, I'd say this is probably around me being like three or four years old when I was really starting to get into these, but just that the idea of telling these stories, you know, thinking about, you know, what, what it would be like to hear these over a campfire out in the woods or something like that. It really, really hit me at a different level that I, I didn't know that I really had. And, and, and after that, it was just like a lifelong obsession and love with the horror genre itself. 
Um, what, what was it for you, Nathan? What was some of your first recollections of horror? What really got you into it? Yeah, that that is one of them for me as well. The um, where you talk about the scary stories to tell in the dark, and I came to it the kind of same way you're talking about, which is with the the audio version. I'm a little. I'm like a few years older than you. You're. You said you were born '83. I was born in 79, so there was a there were a couple things a little earlier, but you're right. By about that time in the early 80s, there were – this was out there, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. And there were actually – one of the things we'll probably explore a lot in later episodes is the fact that there was a lot of uh, – like that time period was really big, not just for – now I think we, we look, go to horror stories and horror narrations and, and storytelling from a more nostalgic bent. Around that 70s and 80s time, there was still a really high interest, uh, I would say almost very mainstream, in like the paranormal and the supernatural. You, I, Still on television at the time were shows like In Search Of. And right. I remember some of these things are where I had some of those first touch points with like the kind of paranormal aspect. The Arthur C. Clarke for a short time had a, a TV show called Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. I remember it would always open with that crystal skull sort of spinning. And oh, yeah. it, honestly, that was my first experience with Arthur C. Clarke. I didn't even – was not aware he had written uh, 2001. I thought he was some old man who walked on the shores of Sri Lanka with an umbrella and told you about like – you know, yetis and things. So that was sort of my experience. Those shows were all on television. Uh, Time Life had all those, remember, those mysterious, like, world oh, books yeah. and everything. And so I'm reading about spontaneous human combustion in Time Life. So, yeah, it's got to be true. And, I mean, you know, those supermarket tabloids, that was not really just a drop in the hat. It was everything was like that, you know. And you can kind of see it reflected in the culture at the time. So storytelling collections, there was a whole the, – the, your paranormal section in the library was still a niche thing, but it was rather large. There were a lot of books there, a lot of them by the same authors. And the scary stories to tell in the dark was definitely purely from a folklore standpoint. What was cool was they'd also have little anecdotes about how they collected the stories. And Alvin Schwartz was the writer and Stephen Gamel did those illustrations, which the books would have been nothing without the illustrations. But like you, no, not at all. like you, I came to them through the audiobook. We picked it up at the library, and it's a fantastic audiobook. I don't know that they're still out there, that they're selling them, but someone has loaded them all up on YouTube, and they are absolutely worth listening to. One of the reasons it makes them so great, uh, just like Schwartz had Gamel's illustrations to really kind of add a weird ambiance to the, uh, to the book version. They had George S. Irving, and that name might not mean anything to you, but he was the narrator, if anyone remembers, the underdog cartoons. So he narrated oh, underdog. Yeah. He has a kind of booming, jovial voice that can sometimes sound like it's cracking and going insane. So sort of perfect for uh, – he puts his voice through a lot of interesting sort of uh, gestations on these audiobooks because a lot of these stories are jump scare stories. So they end with a, you've got it, or something like that. And this guy is just screaming on this soundtrack. And he, <laughs> yes. he tries to put a kind of reverberation of fear. So as things get worse and worse, he sounds like himself he is getting spooked out. And it's a strange yeah. thing because he has a grandfatherly sort of voice. So as a young kid, you're listening to this 
person who you you know you're an older kindly kind of wise kind of voice start to just lose their mess on these stories about you yeah. know the big toe and and things like that it's just such a good job like uh it's worth listening to just to hear his voice. And we'll have, I'm going to put some of the links in our show notes here for this first episode. But George S. Irving, he did those. You can look them up. They're scary stories to tell in the dark. And it's the audio version. And uh, it was fantastic. It was so freaky. Uh, and it was visceral, which I think is what made the difference. It was visceral. I experienced the stories. And then I started to think about them from the perspective of folklore. Which was neat. Swartz would always give you both experiences. He'd tell you the story. Once you were done being freaked out by it, you could go back and listen to uh, him talk about variations or reading the book about the variations on the story that existed. So you started to see behind the scenes the same way that watching a making of of a horror film sort of demystified it for you. Uh, for me, yeah. one of the first touch points for horror fiction, I think, was watching the Clash of the Titans, uh, a movie that looks like oh, it was yes. made in 1966, but was actually made in like 1981. Uh, also, Lawrence Olivier played Zeus and, you know, Burgess Meredith. And so... The movie has all the same kind of special effects that Ray Harryhausen did in those Jason and the Argonaut movies and the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Those movies would play like on Sunday afternoons or Saturday afternoons. They would like <laughs> – yeah. they were probably easy to acquire so you'd just have a whole day of like Sinbad movies. And it, yeah, it was hard to tell where one ended and one began. And again, early 80s, Clash of the Titans comes out. It's released on – VHS and you're watching it and to me it just felt like another piece of all these older movies but by being a little older or being a little newer actually and being a little bit further down the the special effects range Harry Harryhausen started to make things just a little bit creepier than they were in a lot of his other movies so yeah. I remember seeing stuff like uh, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad with the Cyclops and with the dragon and was kind of acclimated to those and then Midway and Clash of Titans has a lot of these sort of creatures, the Kraken and the, the two headed dog, the Diaskillus. And so you get to a point where they're going to enter the lair of Medusa, and you've got a pretty good idea where this is going. And then it crawls out, and it's really, um, it's pretty fundamentally creepy. It's still creepy. I watched it recently with my children trying to make sure they have the same experience right and uh they were much braver than i they they dealt with it much better than i did they were like this is kind of creepy dad i'm like yeah i was out of the room by this point like she crawls through the darkness the way he has this thing lit the eyes are lit up and it's not just a woman with a head of snakes it's a whole snake body uh sort of and it slithers and that strange herky jerky stop motion is what makes it creepy they've done cgi versions of this we had a clash of titans remake it's not really worth a whole lot a few years back, it's just you're looking at CGI that's fine, but this thing moved in a way that just was disturbing, like something out of your nightmares. It it, it moved. It felt real. It when moved the a way a monster would move. It didn't. It wasn't playing by the rules. It would drag itself from one location to the other. I remember when you finally cut its head off, and this the idea too that just looking upon it was so terrible that that was the end. The last thing you would remember ever was this thing staring at you, knowing that you were done, you were toast. And so, (laughs) like, there's that fear, like, when you're a kid about the monster under the bed, you don't want to see it, but you kind of want to see it. The Medusa has that horrible thing that your desire to see it will be the thing, the very thing that kills you. So that really messed (laughs) with my head a lot as a kid. And I got kind of caught. So that's visceral, too. That scene was so visceral, even the part where he cuts the head off, and then later he's still dragging it around because it's sort of their weapon against the other monsters. It never stopped bothering me, you know. But the concept of the Medusa really kind of fascinated me and i kind of went i mean 
And I remember like being so fascinated by it that I was going to the, the library and starting to get books out about Greek mythology just to learn more about the Medusa and learn about the Gorgons. And kind of, uh, I don't know why, I just became very fascinated by that character. And it was my road into Greek mythology, which became the road into stories and kind of looking up the folklore books. And then that kind of led to scary stories and so on and so forth. So for me, it started right there with Clash of the Titans. But it was that visceral experience that made me want to know more. Yeah, definitely. That was that was another one that I watched like over and over and over again when I was a kid. And it's funny because like when you're – Watching it now, like you have an appreciation for it as you know the the art and the craft that went into making those creatures. But as a child, when you watch it, you go along with it. There's no um, uncanny valley or anything like that in your mind. You you're just willing to accept this creature, and it it feels real. It, it looks real to you, you know. And that those terrors behind it, especially just the you know watching the snakes of her hair just kind of move back and forth as she's. You know, like you said, the herky-jerky movements of her lurching forward. Um, you know, there's something about it that's very, very effective. Um, you know, even if you don't remember too much from that film, the Medusa, you're you're going to remember her. <laughs> Undoubtedly. And I, I think that, again, you get that moment where what about something is, is scary or creepy to a, a child? And I think... With the Medusa, there's a lot of um, – think about Greek mythology in general. There were a lot of hybrid things. Everything was something you recognized, and a lot of them had human attributes. So this human attribute part, the part where it's a woman but it has a head of snakes, uh, it was this combination of things that as a kid you're looking at it and the familiarity is what makes it sort of worse, makes it a little bit more disturbing. And right. the, if it's not surprising that this component is really big – when we get to the urban legends, the stories that people tell. Uh, very rarely do we have something completely alien. We have something that is made more profane in some ways by being familiar mixed with something else. Um, that is, that once you add these two like things together, you get something that is sort of an abomination, if you will. And um, that kind of probably leads me to, uh, if we want to talk about the urban legends, like stories that you first remember hearing, that you were told and uh, someone telling you something's true, which is always uh, – I mean I guess probably most of us, our first urban legend was Santa Claus. But um, I've spoiled <laughs> yeah. it for you guys. I'm sorry. Hopefully <laughs> really there aren't any like four-year-olds listen to this. Though Though my, <laughs> yeah. my kids have been asking me, so we might have to add it. Um, but the, no, no. But like I, it, in some ways it's true. That's probably one of the first ones. And it's always a kind of dicey proposition because it does become that point when – you either figure out that you're sort of playing a game that has certain rules to it and you realize these rules are different than the rules that govern the other things your parents tell you, you know. And I think somewhere along the line early on, and I think any kid who's drawn to horror probably picks it up pretty quickly, um, is that, hey, this is a game and there are rules to it and it plays a little differently than the rules that if, if mom and dad tell me not to do this thing over here, it's a little different than – Sleep tight, don't let the bed bugs bite, you know, or that, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, that there are rules to it. When when you try to merge those rules together, you get problems. So I feel like growing up, I at some point, that was a natural progression. There was no point when I felt like, you people have been lying to me. <laughs> Why do you want to make me afraid? <laughs> you know, there, and I think this is true for most people. You reach a natural progression where you realize that something is a story. You sort of instinctively feel it. It doesn't necessarily make it less scary to you because 
Um, if you are a kind of, if, if you're someone who thinks about things, you realize that you can't necessarily prove it's wrong. Maybe you just haven't seen it yet. And, uh, yeah. so it always lays in the back of your mind, but you basically realize, um, or you end up living in a lot of, lot of fear. <laughs> and, uh, that was not, that wasn't me. I remember thinking these stories are probably not true, but I guess I don't really know that they aren't strange because one of my first memories with, uh, urban legends was a group of people actually coming to our elementary school. It wasn't really my first experience because I probably been like reading books and stuff for a bit, but a very formative one. I remember we were second, I think in the second grade and they had an assembly in, in their school and, uh, in the auditorium. So this is like mid eighties. So it's definitely one of those, um, at the time I lived kind of, a in, in Dublin, this is Dublin, Maryland, not Dublin, Ireland. That would be much cooler. I probably have a lot cooler stories. It was Dublin, Ireland, but no, it's that kind of Harford <laughs> County. If anyone knows, uh, Seth and I are both in the same basic, uh, area. You're in Pennsylvania. I'm here in Maryland. I'm in Baltimore, Maryland, but I grew up a little bit, uh, further up, a little closer to Pennsylvania, uh, in Harford County. And, um, so it was kind of a run, like a, not run down, but it was an older school. The auditorium definitely had that mothball-y sort of like <laughs> old people smell to it. You know, like the old wood Asbestos panels. in the floor. Yeah, you could just kind of sense that, hey, this is um, – this place is old. <laughs> you, you felt like you were just like ingesting dust motes as you sat there. And uh, <laughs> right. so the ambiance is kind of perfect because it's like a late rainy Friday afternoon. They bring us off in for an assembly and – this group comes in who's called, and I believe there's still a variation of these people out there because it was related to a local community college. Uh, they're the Tidewater players. And uh, if there's Tidewater players out there and you hear this, you're like, we never performed anything like that. Well, then someone someone <laughs> stole your name and has did horrible things. Uh, but this group comes in, and I think it's probably okay to say that lots of assemblies, uh, school assemblies for elementary school kids end up being horribly lame. You know, and, and, and honestly, a lot of times the more creative, the, the sad truth is the more creative someone tried to be, the worse they ended up being. You know, uh, right. someone comes dressed up like they're Pocahontas and they try to like act in character and you're like, this is horrible. <laughs> and uh, I was fully expecting something like this because everyone marches out and there's a whole bit where someone comes out dressed like like a giant red crab. And I'm like, this is going to be every bit as painful as my, my mind has imagined. Uh, very quickly, though, it becomes clear that they are here to just give us like a sampling of local folklore. And to their credit, they kind of end up just telling the stories in a straightforward manner. And up there on stage with a, just a handful of people, uh, again, we're not in the dark, but the lights are kind of like uh, just dim, dingy, like school auditorium lights so it's not like like the whole the rain you can hear the rain battering outside it's like the perfect it's like that scene it's not that far off from the scene where the kids in the attic and the never-ending story it's not quite like that there's no like stuffed right. bobcats or anything but they're telling these stories and its stories start out very kind of friendly and fun like the crab story and they tell us about chessie which is our chesapeake sea monster and then they start getting into stories like hey mom uh 
I accidentally dropped the liver I bought from the store on the way home, but it's okay. I found a dead body, and I took that liver, and I'm bringing it back. And uh, But then later, that body comes back looking for the liver. Literally, that was one of the stories they told this group of kids. It was all the different elementary school grades from first grade to fifth grade sitting in this auditorium listening to this guy, this guy pant, this old guy in his probably early 60s pantomime pulling the liver out of some – 20 something kid laying on the ground it was um it was impressive <laughs> and uh they 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 went those stories they did the golden arm kind of stories all these same basic iterations and then they got to something i had never heard before which was the pig woman and this is the, the pig woman of cecil county she is definitely a kind of lover's lane monster we'll probably talk more about her later i don't want to go into a lot of detail but the two stories she told are stories that anyone who's listened to this podcast and knows urban legends will probably be intimately familiar with, even though the name attributed to them probably isn't Pig Woman in their, their um, vernacular. Pig Woman is a Cecil County legend. It's sort of on the other side of Hartford County. She was related to one specific physical space. It was like a bridge, the Pig Woman Bridge. Uh, one of the stories involved two young people going out to this bridge. They're caught in a rainstorm. The uh, boyfriend goes to kind of to get some help or to kind of walk up the road to the gas station and then you've got the girlfriend stuck in the car and is tormented by these sounds that she keeps hearing and there's this consistent knocking on the window of the car and so she knows that there is an intruder of some sort outside and she just kind of hunches up and gets down on the back seat gets as low as she can so that all she can see is the rain drizzling down in the dark on the window she can't see anything else and this stays there basically that way until morning when she comes out and realizes that it's her boyfriend's body hanging from the tree whose feet are hitting the car that's a pretty classic story they've adapted it here and they added that pig woman was the perpetrator the pig woman herself has a lot of different i like i concepts on why she looks the way she does some people are straight up like it's got a pig's head and <laughs> you get that mashup you know it's a woman with a pig's head uh, she was yeah. horribly disfigured in a fire she's become very rageful and vengeful and sort of feral and so her uh desire is to harm anyone who comes into her proximity you know the, we also have in Maryland, we have uh, Prince George's County, we have the Goat Man. So we have a lot of domestic monsters. So, But um, I – this scared the mess out of me. Um, uh, that'll do, Pig. Yeah, I was pretty much um, – <laughs> I'm sure at some point we're, we're going to probably devote an entire episode to local le- legends. Um, you know, if, if you haven't seen them, there's, there's a whole series of books that they did called – uh, weird U.S. and they do ones on each state, and I'm sure Maryland and both Pennsylvania have a ton of different stories like that. Yeah, Pig Woman definitely made it into the weird, the weird Maryland book. So, so if you're into that kind of stuff, those books are definitely highly recommended. Um, for me, mine was not a story that made it the cut into those books, but um, it was something that left an indelible mark on me, nonetheless. Um, uh, this there was a story called uh, the hairy hand, and I first heard about this when I was in the Boy Scouts. I was probably a Cub Scouts. So I was fairly young when I heard this, and we were taking a camping trip. The uh, hairy hand to... is this a cautionary fable? Yeah, <laughs> it's called don't 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 mess with the janitor, son. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, 
we where I live in Pennsylvania, we're we're probably like in in central Pennsylvania, um, outside of the capital of Harrisburg, about uh, about a half an hour or so, and and much of this area is all surrounded by um, woods and, and mountains. And being in the Boy Scouts, we would take you know camping trips up into uh, the a place called the Michaud Forest, and there's a lot of uh, kind of legends around this this area, this forest region, uh, in what we call the South Mountain of uh, the Central Valley, and up up here, we, I remember distinctly this night when they were telling us this story. It was very late at night. We only had candles lit for um, our light source in the cabin that we were staying at. And the story was about how there there was two lakes, uh, one called Fuller and one called Laurel Lake. And in Laurel Lake, uh, they had told a story about a man who had drowned. Uh, you know, he was a very big man who had hair all over his arms and his hands. And he drowned in this lake years ago. And if you were to go swimming out there at night, uh, the hand would emerge from the murky depths and pull you under um, to never be seen again. And it was one of those stories where you'd been out to this lake itself. You'd probably been swimming in it at this point. It was one of those places where if you'd go underneath the water and open your eyes, you couldn't see anything at all except for just you know maybe a few inches in front of your face. And I, I just remember sitting up late at night that night, you know, where the wind is howling outside and it's creaking through the eaves of this old cabin and just thinking about this gigantic hand coming up from the lake underneath like a moonlit sky and just grabbing you by the ankle and pulling you down into these depths uh you know as you're you're you know have a silent scream on your face trying to gasp for breath as it's dragging you down uh just one of those things where you you hear one of those, those stories and it just sticks with you so much that Anytime you would go by that lake or, or swim in it again, that's all you could picture the entire time that you were there was this, this hand reaching out for you uh, from, from the darkness of the waters. Well, one thing I think is kind of interesting is, especially for us being in this part of the East Coast, you know, we're, we're part of the very early beginnings of, of America as a country, and I think a lot of legends and folklore kind of have sprung up from that um of people like kind of making their way pioneers and things like that um and i think a lot of that's kind of ingrained us in us as people from the east coast it's just part of our culture here um which kind of brings me to uh, another conversation that we want to have quickly um uh, you know, and I think you and I will share many different experiences that we have. I've had more than just one. So uh, I'm sure over time we'll be talking about a lot of those things. So one, one of those things I wanted to talk about uh, while we're here is kind of maybe an instance that we've had in our own personal life, something that unexplained that's happened to us. Um, and, and this kind of goes into my telling of kind of where we come from in the East Coast here um, from the early days of this country here. So I grew up in a very old house by um, United States standards. Um, it's It was roughly built in the 1700s. So it was about 1750 that this house was built. It's one of the oldest houses in Pennsylvania. Um, you can still see a lot of the original logs from its structure in, in certain rooms of the house. So a house that is this old is going to have some history, 
and more importantly, it's going to have some history that wants to stick around, I think. Um, so all throughout my childhood, even into my teenage years, there were very odd occurrences that would happen. Um, it started off very subtle, as things like this will typically happen. But over time, it grew in its own way, making its own presence known to me. Uh, I, I think in a way, the things that are left behind might even wait to introduce themselves to you and, and leave their mark on you. Uh, once you begin to kind of join them, you've started to put your own history into a place. So they start to reveal themselves to you over time. Um, from what I can remember specifically, some of the first instances of something that was just very slight or it could just be mistaken for common happenings, uh, it started off with things like cold spots. So this is a house, again, as old as it is, you they can be quite drafty at times, but that doesn't fully account for this particular feeling. Um, so sometimes you'd be in a room that felt warm all over by other standards, and then all of a sudden you'd be brushing up against space uh, where the temperature around it dropped by what felt like maybe 30 degrees or so. Uh, something that like that you can kind of brush off at times. You can push something like that aside without much of a moment's notice to it. Uh, but then lights turning on and off by themselves is another thing altogether. So I think when when their visibility began to grow, these entities, it's like they became emboldened to start toying around with us. Um, it never felt like anything that was really outright malicious, but it did feel like they were like playing jokes on our family. You would turn a light off in the house, and then you'd come downstairs, and they'd all be on. Uh, this particular event happened a few times. It actually happened twice uh, the same night that my grandparents passed away. Um, they were all out mysteriously when we left the house, and then when we came back home, they were all on. It wasn't negligence or anything like that. They just were off, and then all of a sudden that they were on. Um, but even that was not really the height of the experience that I had in that house growing up. So I, I really think that these, these things got comfortable over time, uh, and eventually they started to speak. Um, when I first heard them talk, I lived in the second story of the house, and there was a vent system that came down through the heating ducts, and I would start hearing them calling my name, and they would just it was just kind of like a whisper that I would hear, and I'd always you know run downstairs and I'd you know go to my parents and be like, "Did you guys need something for me? You know what did you need?" And they'd be like, "I didn't call you. We didn't, none of us called you, but I just you know." all of a sudden just hear this whisper over and over. It sounded like it was coming from the vent. It sounded like it was coming from the wall. You know, just these multiple voices just calling out to me. And, you know, I never knew what they wanted from me, but it was always like they they just wanted to let me know that their presence was there. Um, and like I said, it was not something I ever felt that, you know, I was in danger, but it always, I, I always knew that there was something else there with me, some kind of energy that was hanging on and knew that that we were there and that we were, you know, even our story was becoming a part of this house that they had incorporated as well, too. Seth, how old were you when you um, when they started to speak? Um, I, I was probably around, 
you know, seven or eight. And what's really interesting is that I'm now living in that house again. We moved back into this house uh, as my parents had gone into retirement and are now going across country. And what's funny is my daughter has actually come to me and told me that she's hearing her name being called in this house again. I didn't prompt her with this. I never even told her that I'd had that kind of experience. Uh, but just a few days ago, she had actually come to me and told me that she had, sometimes she hears her name being called in this house. So it's uh, like it's passing on generation after generation. Um, now, you have headphones on or basically you got speakers. So um if I'm assuming that things I'm being that I'm saying right now are being broadcast out in your house, so I'm just going to put out an invitation. <laughs> if any of you wants to be on the podcast, I would be more than happy. <laughs> um, we, you know, I'll you can speak for an hour if you want. It's <laughs> we want to hear you, so yes. come let us know. It, try to learn another word than Seth, but yeah, uh, we would love to to have you on. <laughs> that's that's incredibly creepy. So yourself, your daughter. Now, during the time that that occurred, did anyone else in your family ever – did you ever talk about it to them? Like outside of saying, hey, did you guys call my name? Did you ever have a discussion or did anyone in your family ever sort of have that moment where you talk and realize that someone else has had a similar experience or something comparable or does there something you sort of carried along? For for the most part, I, it was something that I kind of just carried alone. But I, I did mention it maybe a time or two to my parents, and I think they also had had maybe their own experiences because I know they had told me when they'd moved into the house after a while, they had had a priest come in, you know, one of their pastors come in and bless every single room in the house. And I know my wife and I, when we moved in here, um, we, we went through the house and burned sage and again, never, never, never anything felt malicious or that there was anything out there to harm us. Um, but just definitely still feels like there's some kind of energy that's still hanging on to this house. And I think part of it's just because of the, the nature of the house, you know, specifically that, you know, people probably lived and died in this house, um, at some point. So, you know, and in those days, especially because the the people who had originally owned this land owned a ton of it, uh, we don't really know where they were buried at, you know, if it was anywhere close to around here or not. And uh, if you go to the back of the yard, um, you can find we've we found like pots and things like that that have been dug, you know, buried underneath the ground, old coins from you know the eighteen hundreds. Uh, even when we were doing renovations in the house. Uh, tearing through the walls, we we actually found a pair of dolls' shoes in the wall one time. Oh man, that's and, totally <laughs> fine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we we did some research on it, and and apparently that was a uh, thing that people used to do uh, back in those times, as they would they would put like a child's shoes or a doll's shoes into the wall, and it was supposed to help uh, ward off witches. Well, good, you don't have witches. <laughs> I, you know, I got a little bit of a shiver there because I thought you were going to stint in that sentence as a, we found a pair of dolls in the wall. And yeah. I just was like, just burn that, burn that, burn that to the ground. We, we found a pair of children in the wall. Well, I mean, you said a pair of dolls. I was like, yeah, that is not, that's, that's not normal. <laughs> I'm not sure dolls' shoes in the wall are much better, but, um, it was a shock to say the least. It's, yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'd be interested to hear more. So, 
this is one of those things. Do we know who lived in the house? Do you know like names or people? It's we we do have records because my parents did do some research into into the history of this house. So we've traced it. We we have traced it back to the the uh, mid seventeen hundreds and have some old deeds and things like that. A lot of old records. So I'll see if at some point I can uh, maybe scan some of those documents and we can. Uh, uh, post those pictures along too if anybody's interested to see that but as far as you know nothing nothing excessively traumatic or no no terrible nothing nothing horrible no no murder or anything like that so uh, nothing nothing horrible but just uh, it does feel like there's something uh that's still still around here that is fascinating you will have to keep us uh posted on that the, the part that is compelling to me um the whole thing is but particularly the bit that your daughter is now sort of coming forward and mentioning hearing her name like that's um uh you keep an eye on that (laughs) if she starts crawling on the ceiling i'll I'll definitely let you know (laughs) you can't talk to strangers honey particularly ones that aren't alive (laughs) right Um, this is kind of a deal breaker um (laughs) you know and i didn't there were a lot of strange events that i could think to draw from a lot of them uh and i think this is maybe that skeptical part of my mind where i don't have a, a scenario that necessarily i would have uh, like a haunting or something per se but there were circumstances or scenarios that occurred that my mind just didn't necessarily always link them together or link them together in strange ways and then later when i'm looking back on them i'm trying to wonder how much my mind was making connections that weren't there or there there was part of something larger but you know i've got some of the things that happened to me aren't clearly explained if you know what i mean you know it can sort of i think a lot of things we experience in childhood can either be explained away in a totally innocent way and it's just our mind that has transformed them but then there's sort of a sinister sort of bent to them and you've kind of seen the story that i'm about to share and um it kind of could go either way but it's definitely a little on the creepy side uh and it was creepy sort of when i experienced it and it was it happened at a certain point in time where there were a lot of I, I was towards the end of elementary school I was in fourth or fifth grade and there were a lot of events around that time where I was starting to see things in a kind of a larger picture and I probably fair to say I don't have too much background on this for this particular podcast but in the late eighties the eighty seven eighty eight eighty nine so we're right here at about eighty eight eighty nine uh, contextually for when this is happening. Um, those are big times for what we would we can probably define later as the satanic panic. Yes, in the yeah. in the eighties, I mean, this was a, people being afraid that Satanists were really sort of take, going to take over your children and your. Uh, we just finished carving out suburban domesticity, and now they're going to take it from us and pervert it and destroy it. And I mean, this was this isn't just something in my memory. That the area, the small little town I lived in. Uh, had had people actually accusing other people of sort of and, and and pointing out certain figures, real people who lived in this town as uh, Satanists, you know. And and now I look at them, and they were mostly those young guys in the jackets who were, you know, listening to Megadeth or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, it, it sounds funny, but these were like signposts. Everyone else that you know, these guys are involved in something kind of dark. And there were oh. a couple of circumstances where 
my memory is things legitimately happened, but it was hard to suss out what was real and what was paranoia. And they got, you can see, uh, there were specific memories I have that that I won't go into too much tonight that really made me see how something like the Salem witch trials can happen and occur uh, because of how quickly people start to run the gears of their mind through a lot of different scenarios. Yeah. I, and like you said, it was, it, it seems kind of like silly and funny now, but at the time it was, it was a really serious business. I remember, um, you know, almost every single talk show, there was like Phil Donahue and Sally Jesse Raphael. Like they all have specials on the, you know, Satanists and they were, you know, sacrificing babies and they're out in the woods trying to get your children to join them. I mean, it was, this was a real thing that happened and it caused a lot of problems at the time. And you'll see things like that after, you know, uh, even into the nineties, it it extended that to when you read about cases like the, the West Memphis story, you know, a lot of the satanic panic played into the uh, false accusations that went across those children uh, who who were convicted of uh, murdering children uh, because of this whole satanic panic thing. You started to have sort of uh, copycat behavior, you know. The stories became true because there definitely were a subset of people who kind of wanted to, yes, people do mutilate animals sometimes. Uh, groups of kids do get together and do crazy things and suddenly they had a very easy template a very easy scapegoat if you will and it was satan you know and so some of this was certainly funneled in i don't believe there were packs of roaming satanists running around in the 80s but i do think that you started to have actual crimes that resembled the fear that everybody had and these two things just started to feed each other that kind of is the subset of what's going on around this, but I'm only kind of, I'm only sort of partially aware of it as a kid, you know, uh, I'm aware of it when it becomes presented. This leads to an experience where this is, this is about a year before most of this stuff started to happen. So it wasn't until afterwards that, but it was the awareness where we lived. We lived back in the woods. We lived in a small town. We didn't, we had neighbors on either side of us. They were directly next to us but we all kind of kept to ourselves and we were sort of in again ensconced in this small little grove of trees it wasn't a full-blown woods it didn't go for miles and miles but there was enough that when you walked into the woods you're completely surrounded by trees you could walk for a few feet and you really felt like you were in the middle of the forest you know uh you no longer see a house on your left or your right and you felt particularly as a kid hey i'm in the middle of the woods and i'm kind of out there and certainly you were far enough out that if someone were to stumble upon you you probably wouldn't have enough time to get all the way back to your house you'd have to go up and out of the woods and so there's that feeling you were in a completely different sort of world at that point but there was also kind of i think in the 80s the early 80s there was a sense of more freedom even though this stuff was happening people didn't seem to be as worried if you're if if you as a kid wandered into the woods no not at all and, or you know like a lot of kids uh friends of mine who grew up in california like yeah the latchkey kind of like et thing where they just ride around the entire like suburb until like midnight that was me yeah and that stuff did happen and i remember it was weird that at the same time you had this sort of um Spectre. I think it was because it was a specter. We weren't hearing. We we had these stories, these fictions, but there weren't school shootings necessarily happening every other month. There weren't. Uh, you didn't. We didn't have all these necessary stories about abduction and stuff happening. They were happening in pockets here or there. You know. I think my yeah. my 
town had the luxury of Satanists because it had no real, thankfully, crime or dark thing sort of happening to it. And we developed a sort of sense of maybe false security, that everything's fine, that everything's okay. And this was the first time that sort of punctured it for me. Uh, just in a sense of I thought about where the, where the I don't know that much about the place I live. We my my family again, like I mentioned, we had my uh, grandparents lived with us in a house inside. My uh, uncle lived with us at the time too, and then my parents and my myself and my uh, my brother and two sisters we lived in the other kind of house. So. We were all sort of there together. The basement had a – we had an actual root cellar, which was just like that root cellar from the Evil Dead pretty much. Uh, you couldn't get to it by like growing down. But if you walked outside the house, it had an old rickety door and you would walk into the root cellar. It had a root cellar. It also had another kind of um, larger basement with an actual furnace in it. So we had a wood furnace and we would gather wood. And sometimes there would be downed trees in the, uh, in the back of the woods and all the neighbors we were sort of – of the agreement that, Hey, we can go down there. We can share these things. If trees are down, people would just drive their car, their trucks back, cut some wood, pile it up and then bring it back. And we, the, the way you could go directly through the back of my yard, it was interesting because the yard was sort of like a perfect thing for like a, a kid. Cause you would walk out and it was rock walls, literally handmade rock walls that kind of ran down and separated it from the other two houses. And there was a big kind of creepy shed in the back, like a big, almost more like a garage hole in a shed, you know, and you had gardens and everything. And then beyond that was the woods. And once you were in the woods, like I say, you were just sort of ensconced there. And we would go down there. We would ride with our dad down to the actual place where the trees were downed. And then we would kind of hang out down there on some rocks that ran over a stream and just sort of hang out there. We would bring like, uh, I don't think I have baseball cards, but I had probably like tops trading cards of some some manner. Probably they're probably horror cards or something. And I remember uh, yeah. I just sort of hanging out there, and they would be cutting the wood, and we would it'd be like a, a fall day usually, and or sometimes maybe in the it would it would be right around that time like October going to November when you you need to kind of pile up some firewood. And we be we were hanging out there one day, and it was that kind of day where. There was a lot of wood to cut. We were sort of disconnected from that whole process. We'd helped move some of it, but we were kids, and we were like, yeah, we're done with this. And we decided we just wanted to go back. It was getting colder. It was the edging towards like 3 o'clock, and and, and on 3 o'clock on like late October or November, you know, it's starting to get kind of dark, and it is getting colder, and you're sitting there, and you know, how much longer am I going to be sitting here? It's Saturday. I'd rather be back watching TV or, you know, doing something, even reading a book. I mostly just don't want to be cold anymore. So we're there on the rocks. We kind of father know and my uncle know that, hey, we're going to go back. And that was okay as long as we went directly back. You know, you just walk directly back. So we head out. Every We had walked these paths before, so we knew exactly how to get back. You're uh, it's also everything's covered in leaves because it's the fall. So when you're, you know what it's like, Seth, to look out and everything is basically like a big blanket of leaves. Some of them rotted, some of them crunchy, but everything's, you know, there's not a lot of differentiation. You know, 
you can you're looking for where the where trees thin out and oh, there's yeah, a sparse place funny. to walk, but you don't really have a clear path. You're just sort of trudging. The other thing is what that whole experience sounds like, uh, because everything is basic. You're basing everything off of where you can hear the crunch of leaves. And you, while you're walking, you can't hear anything but your own feet because it's whoosh, 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 whoosh. you're just sort of trucking through leaves. And when we would stop, you could hear any kind of movement anywhere else. So if something moved on the left side up on the bank, you could hear it. And you're used to hearing things move and, and there's an animal, a squirrel or a fox or something like that up on the hill. Uh, and it would dart and it would cause enough movement that you'd have a cascade of leaves fall down the hill. And it, we were at such, the level was such that we were sort of lower than everything on the left and right of us. So we would literally look over and see a, you could see, a kind of hill cascade down and then a ridge that you could look up on and everything that would be up there in that portion of the woods. If there was an animal saying there, you could look up and see it up there. And it made, it was kind of a strange experience because you all were basically walking through a valley and we were walking on our way out and we started to realize that there was a, that when we stopped, there were a series of what sounded like, steps someone walking and i would say someone because you know the difference between when an animal is sort of moving through the f woods or through a group of leaves it sounds like a wriggling sort of shaky motion you know uh it doesn't sound it's not differentiated by steps where you hear a yeah. kind of trudging like, ch -ch -ch. to me i mean if you're talking about a big dog or a big uh um cat or something like that it sounds like a dashing motion you know it's sort of moving its body is so low in a lot of cases that it's just like it's like yeah, it tunneling does. through the leaves as much as it is like walking through them so this was clearly a set of like what i would say are human or humanoid footsteps uh coming through bipedal is what i'm really trying to say coming through the woods and we look up we're trying to see where this is coming from it's a creepy thing too when you hear somebody moving and you can't see them and particularly when you're in what is a relatively open area. So we're out in the open, we're looking around, and we cannot for the life of us see anybody at all moving. This is the, for the first 10 or 15 minutes. So we're trying to walk. We also end up kind of walking off the path because there, we didn't, we wanted to go home, but we also didn't want to just run right up. We were sort of like, oh, let's walk by. There was one big tree that was a big hollow tree, it had a hollow center to it. And one time we had gone up there and there had been a possum like inside of the tree. Thankfully, we didn't put our arms in, but, you know, we saw it and we we're like, oh, it'd be cool. Let's walk by. We'll see the possum and then we'll come back up. And so <laughs> we were walking for about 10 minutes where we didn't see anything at all. Uh, we also had this feeling of, hey, this is all kind of safe because eventually the only thing we'll hit if we keep walking will be the border of our other neighbor's yard. We know those neighbors. There was that, again, potential sense of security. Now, what we weren't thinking about is the fact that really this whole area is open. Anyone can wander in from anywhere. This ex this incident I mentioned with the cats, uh, my the school I went to was only about two and a half miles from where I actually lived. But I just am not thinking about it because I'm in the woods and it just feels like you're in a different place. It isn't long, about 10 minutes go by, when we are able to actually turn around and finally see some shape that a person, I say a person, but it was so far away, you could just see them moving on like the horizon. And they were clearly bundled up. Now, they weren't my 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 uh, relatives, my dad and my uncle, they were had those like soup, you know, those flannel, super dark red, looks like it's a... Uh, 
you know, burns it. You can see it once you close your eyes, you know, unmistakable, the flannel like jackets back in the eighties. Like, I mean, yeah. they would, un- they were unmistakable and our neighbors who did hunt sometimes, they also wore like the orange jacket. So it, this was completely kind of dark and muted and you couldn't even quite tell if what you were looking at, what you were looking at. Again, it's also getting a little bit dark in the day, but we could see someone moving there. And I'm like, man, that's probably our uncle. He's trying to mess with us in some way. I don't know where he's got, you know, if he's thrown a jacket or a you know blanket or something, but I don't know what's going on, but we see, so it's clearly somebody moving. It's clearly a person standing up and we can see them moving and they will pause in such a way that it looks like they're looking at us. They just stop and pause. And it's just, we didn't have binoculars. We didn't have anything like that. We just want to get out of there. Once you realize there's somebody moving in your general direction and you're a kid, you're just like, look, I'm too far to go back to where we were and we got to get back. But then what we realized is we had walking, we had wandered out in such a way where we weren't exactly sure how to get back. It wasn't that we didn't, we, the, the, the kind of panicky part when you're like a, in the fourth grade, when you're like eight or nine years old is okay, I'm in such a dense part of the woods that I now have to be on a path to get back because I can't just run through brambles or something. I'm now pushing through what's a serious kind of underbrush. And yes, in reality, I'm about so many feet from my house, but I can't get there this way. And if whoever's behind me starts to come at me, then I don't know what we're going to do. So we keep walking we get around the side, and 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 then we, as as we have to come back, we realize that rocks are sort of being tossed down the hill to us, and, and there are rocks on the path. Like, and when we come, we wow. walk back up along the side. We come to the big tree, and we come back down. And the bizarre thing is that, like, seeing this, and you you kind of take it, and you you know everything is a magical totem when you're a kid, but it's a creepy experience, particularly when now. You feel like you're sort of being pursued. And we see these things. The rocks have clearly yeah. – there's a case where they're tumbling down. They've been laid out. When we come back around, they've actually been like arranged on the path in front of us. I remember later watching The Blair Witch Project when I was a teenager and that just viscerally affecting me because of that whole thing of <laughs> like what it say. is like when you walk in and realize that somebody specifically – you feel like someone specifically done something for your benefit, but the kind of thing you don't want people to do, uh, which is lay yeah. these rocks out. And they were just laid out in like little half circles on the path in front of us. So about a half hour has gone by now and we're like, we've got to get out of here. And it's you're reaching this point where it's in the woods, it's dark. It might be perfectly sunny outside, but about four o'clock it starts to feel – like five or six inside the woods when you've got the cover of trees and everything. So we're trying to get out. We walk back down the ravine. So now we're trying to walk yeah. around the side and stay in the woods because we kind of don't want whoever's on the embankment to see us. By the time we come back to where the rocks are, the 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 figure is gone. But we kind of realize, hey, this is not good because if it's not somebody we know messing with us, I don't know what's happening right now. It's that moment you crash up against – this is this has a feeling of yeah. more than it's just my mind. So we try to get out. Where we we are now just kind of frantically scrabbling mm-hmm. everywhere we can. We don't really feel like we know exactly where we are. We're trying to find a path to get back. We come up and we're just at the point when the ridge meets a small path that will run up right to the back of our house. Like if I'm fifty feet further, I can see the top of my. The, the 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 top of the house itself poking over the trees. I just have to get up there. We get about there. We look over, and this figure, this shape, is 
a good distance away from us. It's up on top of that ravine I mentioned where you can see it kind of narrows down to a valley and comes out and at the creek. And we look up and there is clearly a figure propped against the side of a tree. And they are hunched down. And yes, and it is very, oh, uh, honestly, it is very obviously a person. And they are, but I still can't see them. I can't see their face, which, like, I as a thinking back on this memory and trying to talk, you know, like, talk it out, be like, okay, what exactly did we see? I, I think the harder thing is the fact that you didn't know what you were looking at because that, to me, suggested that someone was purpose, purposefully trying to obscure themselves. Like, you're looking, like, I'm looking at you. Why can't I see your face? And I have a memory of that kind of, like, a... I don't know what you would call them. The, the knitted sort of like ski cap that, you know, again, this was popular in the eighties. It's not a full ski oh, cap. Yeah. I think I, my family called them boggins. I don't know why the thing that Heather Donahue was wearing in the Blair witch project, really that thing, that kind of hat. And that's what I remember. I also remember that this figure had like a log or a, a stick or something in their hands. Um, the fact that they had anything in their hands was a little disconcerting. But they weren't moving. They were just up. And they were obscured a little bit, but least. But you could see them moving. You could see them enough that, okay, that's not an animal. It's not a dummy. It's not like a, uh, a deer blind. It's yeah. not someone hunting. Uh, and then they stand up. And this is the moment when you realize it's a person. And they start coming down. I distinctly remember kind of the scariness of hearing the leaves shuffling and the rocks sort of trickling down the hill as they're coming down towards yeah. us. So at this point, it's like, we're out of here. I'm going to run through brambles, okay? I'm ready to push through whatever I need to push through. And we we still aren't quite ready to run, so we kind of get down, we walk up, and we kind of move out of line of sight. The problem is we're, you're, you feel protected because they can't see right. you, but you you know there's that feeling that you're going to come back outside of the bushes, and whoever this is is going to be directly in front of you. So we just take off, run as fast yeah. as we can. At this point, about 50 feet further, we start to hear uh, voices of people we know calling for us. And it's that kind of thing when suddenly the whole world kind of comes rushing back in. We run up. And and the other thing is the voices we hear, this is actually the creepier part because you'd think this would be um, encouraging, is you can hear the voices of my father. You can hear the voices of my uncle calling our names. And which is basically hmm. alleviating that idea that it could be anybody we know behind us. So there's someone behind me who's right. been doing all this strange stuff. And I know that the people in, who care about me are in front of me. And so we burst through the yard like nuts. Um, we're screaming and going off and freaking out. And we feel totally like we've got this story. And, of course, we're kind of the ones in trouble because <laughs> we have – We've been involved. We, we, you know, we went off the path. Of, what were you doing? And it takes a little bit for everyone to kind of realize that nobody is being um, trying to be fanciful or being crazy, but that this thing kind of actually happened. And we don't know what happened, and that that kind of sets a uh, sets a moment where everybody is a little on edge about it, you know, because I think the first obvious thing is is it the neighbor? Could right. it be the neighbors? Could they be involved in it? Um, and then people don't care as much about the crazy little things like, look at this thing I found in the tree and what's happening here. And it, it, it's just a very creepy experience. And I remember waking up many nights and just looking out the window and just feeling like I could see that figure standing at the edge because you could look out my window, our back window, 
and see the edge of that that woods. Oh, that's super creepy. And it's hard because it almost doesn't amount to a lot the further you get away from it. But we had tons of experiences kind of just at the edge of the woods that were that were creepy. And uh, that particular one, it just in the moment was the probably one of the few times I can remember being tangibly afraid of something. But then it evaporating so quickly that it was hard to laugh. You know, you look back on it. Yeah. And um, but it does start to feel strange because you start to have these incidents where, hey, I don't know how safe I was in that moment. I'd like to think it was a neighbor. It was somebody messing with me. But I don't know how safe I really was in that moment. Right. Exactly. Oh, that's scary. So I and I think as we go along, that's sort of one of the things that it's hard to tell with some of, you know. We we always, I think, our lives are always two things. They're the events that happen to us, and then they're the stories we tell about the events to make them make sense. And there are some yeah. stories in our lives that I don't know that we ever fully – that's part of the process of scary stories, of dealing with fear. It's a way to take it and make it – to make it make sense to you. And so I don't know. I can't tell you how much of the story is actually 100% fact and how much of it is – what a, a kid in the fourth grade made of an experience where he felt for a very quick moment that he was no longer safe. And that feeling sort of continued the next year or so. And it only really grew, I think, in general, where I started to think that the places I live aren't that safe. Yeah. Yeah, that stuff definitely sticks with you for a long, long time, too. And so I think that that's a good place to to close it up. Um We've gone on for quite a bit here, uh, but I think um, what I'd like is I'd we'd love to hear from you. If you have stories uh, and you want to share them with us, you can send them to us. I'll have I'll have information with a website and every. I mean, um, I'll have information with an email here, so you can uh, tell you can send things to us. If you have a story, you can send it to us in a written form. Just also let us know we have permission to read it on the podcast. We can do that. If you are interested in sending it to us audio version, I'll I'll set up some places where you can send us audio files as well. Uh, we are not agreeing to necessarily everything we get, but we would love to hear from you, and we would love to present as much of it as possible, and and have definitely uh, be able to talk about these things. And if you're interested in calling in and talking with us, we can, we'll make that happen as well. So. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us for the first podcast of Casting the Bones, and we will see you again next time. Have a great evening. Good night.